morning, everyone, and welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. It's great to see all of you. And uh, like I said last time, it's nice uh, to be able to do this monthly and, and not just be staring at a camera. So again, I'll say, as I said last time, please be as super emotive and expressive as you can possibly be. That, that way I'll know exactly where, where, I'm, where I'm at <laughs> through the service. Okay, um, well, it has been, as Sarah Beth said, a, a year since we last met in person. Actually, for Julia and I, it's been a little bit longer. We've been, uh, we actually had to, to go and we went to, to do a wedding and then, then we went to, to France to see Julia's sister. So it's been over a year for, for us now. Uh, and, and next week, I'll be saying a few more things about uh, reflecting on, on this, this past year. Um, but I just want to take a moment now to sort of recap where we've been in this series um, and we're, we're thinking about the reason why we're doing this series is we're actually thinking about what is it that we're not going to be like this stuff like this forever you know god willing later on this year at some point we're going to be able to be back in each other's presence uh, and, and meet together in person in each other's homes uh, at, at church on a sunday morning uh, and in other venues and, and so we're, we're looking forward to that life together in, in that way again. And, and so uh, this series has been about preparing for that and thinking about, well, what does it mean to plant a church, to be a church that makes sense in a city like New York? What does it mean to be a church that, in a way that makes sense in a city like New York? And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at building a bridge between church and culture. And we've been thinking about John chapter one. In, in many ways, the last six weeks has been an extended meditation on John chapter one, where we have been thinking uh, about what it means to incarnate the gospel into our cultural context. Uh, and that has uh, involved us having some discernment, first of all, this ability to be able to discern between where the, the gospel and culture are sort of at odds with each other, where they militate against each other, and also recognizing where actually uh, the gospel is able to affirm certain aspects of our culture so that we don't end up in this sort of uh, situation where it's either Christ against the culture or Christ identical and off the culture. No, no, there's some subtlety and discernment that needs to go on here. So there's discernment involved. Uh, there's also the ability to tell a story, the gospel story, that weaves together the longings of the human heart. And, and so that's uh, another crucial aspect. And then the ability to be able to translate that story into the common tongue in, into the into the language of our cultural context into plain English so that everyone in our context can understand it so this storytelling this translation this discernment all of this is involved in incarnation and, and bridge building between church and, and culture so that this has all uh, been then sort of expressed a little bit in the last couple of weeks I don't know if you, you all got to hear uh, Lauren and Caitlin uh, sharing uh, for a couple of the last two weeks. It was great hearing them uh, share what, what they had to share and, and really were expressing all of these different aspects of Trinity Heights and saying, well, look, this is how I've experienced these things. Um, and, and to go from being very suspicious of the church to actually being very much part uh, of our lives together. So that's where we've been the last six weeks, an extended 
meditation on John chapter one. Uh, this week, we're going to, to look at John, a couple of verses out of John chapter 13. Uh, in fact, this whole series is going to be looking at John's writings. Uh, after that, we'll be looking at a passage from Revelation, also written by John. So, uh, but this week, we're, we're sort of shifting our focus a bit from John chapter one to John chapter 13. Not so much concentrating on building a bridge between church and culture per se, but thinking about building bridges amongst ourselves and thinking about the relationships uh, within the church. Okay, so that's our focus this week and next week. And next week, I'm going to be interviewing um, our friend Kyra. Uh, and, and so that's going to be a great discussion. So you won't want to miss, miss that. Uh, and again, the reason why we're doing these interviews is because we want we want to, we don't want this just to be a sort of intellectual exercise. We want to, us to see sort of how is this being worked out and manifest in our community and, and lives together. So next week, I'll be interviewing uh, Kyra to talk about some of this stuff. Um, but so here we are in John chapter 13. And Jesus says this in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Um, let's uh, pull up the first quote from, uh, this is a quote from G.K. Chesterton. And G.K. Chesterton says this, he says, the modern world is not evil. In some ways, the modern world is far too good. It is full of wild and wasted virtues. When a religious scheme is shattered, it is not merely the vices that are let loose. The vices are indeed let loose and they wander and do damage. But the virtues are let loose also. And the virtues wander more wildly and the virtues do more terrible damage. The modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. Thus, some scientists care for truth and their truth is pitiless. Thus, some humanitarians only care for pity and their pity, I'm sorry to say, is often untruthful. It's interesting. Chesterton is saying there that a virtue, let's say pursuing truth or showing pity, those are the two examples he gives, a virtue isolated from all the other virtues becomes a vice. He, he's saying there that the vices in the modern world Vices are not about being wrong, but about being right about one thing to the exclusion of all others. Which leads us into what he calls elsewhere, the clean, well-lit prison of a single idea. I like that description. It leads us into what he calls the clean, well-lit prison of a single idea. I think Chesterton's diagnosis of the early 20th century is an even more accurate diagnosis of us in the early 21st century in the Western world, especially in the Anglosphere and especially perhaps in America, where what we have done is we have made a list of Christian, a laundry list of Christian virtues, our favorite Christian virtues, 
and we have proceeded to isolate them from the story, from the source, the Christian narrative. So we've made a laundry list of Christian virtues, we proceeded to isolate it from its source, and then we've proceeded to isolate them from each other as well. And so we're pursuing these wonderful virtues, but in isolation from all the other virtues, and it's not working. Let me give you an example of the sort of thing that I'm, I'm talking about here. Uh, after a year like last year and the beginning that we've had to this year, many people are saying, look, it's time for wounds to heal. We need to come together. We can't be so divided. We, we can't be so polarized. And of course, people talk all the time about being accepting of everyone and affirming that everyone needs to be affirmed. And of course, uh, words like inclusion and diversity have now become well-worn. And some would say even overused buzzwords, institution after institution, show after show, publication after publication, company after company champions these ideas. In fact, I don't really remember a time in living memory where people have talked about these things as incessantly as we do as the culture. And I don't remember a time when words like affirmation and acceptance, diversity and inclusion and equality have been used with such frequency and with the volume turned all the way up. Trouble is, I also don't remember a time when our culture has been so, in living memory, when the culture has been so divided and so polarized. For example, I, I don't recall a time when people who held different political beliefs have been so suspicious and so contemptuous of each other. I don't recall a time in living memory when color consciousness has been reseeded in our minds in new and poisonous ways so that we've gone from one extreme of we don't see color to we see color always and everywhere, which as someone has recently pointed out was formerly the position of the KKK. I also don't remember a time when the gap between the rich and poor has been so vast in America. In fact, the gap between rich and poor in America is actually this larger than the gap between the rich and the poor in France right before the French Revolution. I also don't remember a time when people have spoken so vehemently about the evils of hate speech. And yet I also don't remember a time when so much hate has been spewed out en masse simultaneously. Now, of course, this has something to do with the, the kinds of platforms that we have available to us. But the point is this, we are pursuing these virtues, but there is something about the way that we are pursuing these virtues that is undermining them at the same time, even as we pursue them. We're pursuing them, but there's something about the way we're pursuing them that is undermining them as well, even as we pursue them. Um, you know how I've, uh, I've often talked so many times about the diverse group of people that Jesus calls together to be his very first followers. And, you know, I've often asked us to imagine what would the first supper be like, right? You, you, you know this scene, right? The first supper, I've often asked it, well, well, what would it have been like? You had Simon the Zealot at one end of the table who used, wanted to use political violence to start a revolution and kick out the Romans, start a rebellion political violence. And on the other hand, you had Matthew, the tax collector, who was collecting taxes for 
King Herod, who was Israel's king. Well, in name only, because really he was actually not Israel's, he was, he was Rome's puppet first and foremost. And, and so of course he would have been viewed uh, as a traitor by some and, and viewed with suspicion at best and, and contempt really by most. And so perhaps at their first supper, they sat at opposite ends of the table and they eyed each other with suspicion or perhaps they looked at each other with daggers or perhaps they avoided eye contact altogether. Now, I want you to imagine that scene once again, but now imagine that these people had social media. And imagine at one end of the table, Matthew is typing furiously on his phone, and then at the other end of the table, Simon the Zealot's phone pings, and he gets a notification because for some reason, for some unknown reason, he's following people that he hates. And so he gets this notification, it pings, and, and, and he, now he's furious, he's mad. And, and so he starts typing, traitor, you wait till we kick out the Romans, we're going to remember you. And there's no use deleting all your tweets because we're archiving all of them, loser. And soon everybody's phone is just burning up and half the table are with Matthew the tax collector and the other half are with Simon the zealot. And uh, they start trolling each other for weeks on end. And eventually, eventually they start canceling each other. And then... Jesus says, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to cancel all of y'all. I don't know why I'm doing it in Texas accent, but I'm going to cancel all of y'all because you all are losers. And here endeth the kingdom of God. Uh, I know that's an ugly picture I just painted, but uh, do you know that the question that our culture desperately, desperately needs to know the answer to is how did Jesus move those people from opposite ends of the table? to being sitting next to each other at the, from the first supper to sitting next to each other at the last supper. What kind of environment did Jesus create amongst those first followers of his that these people with opposing, diametrically opposing political views could come together as a family and love each other and enjoy each other as friends? Just, just think for a moment about our own cultural context, the Anglosphere or our America, just think of it for a moment. Think about what would happen, the way our relationships would be, the kinds of anxieties or absence of anxieties, the tenseness or lack of tenseness that would be tensions that there would be. Imagine what our society would look like if we could crack that code tomorrow. What would it be like? You know, it's not as if people aren't working on this. I think most workplaces now have diversity and uh, inclusivity teams. Uh, I have a couple of friends at Trinity Heights who are both in uh, inclusivity and diversity teams at their workplace, uh, and, um, and they are both minorities. Uh, one of them said to her unity, uh, uh, so diversity and inclusivity team at her workplace, she said, you know, there are people in this office who have radically different views on things than anyone represented on this team. How about we invite them onto this team? How about we include them on our inclusivity and diversity team so that we can have a diverse range of viewpoints? Crickets. Her, her suggestion was met with blank, uncomprehending stares. My other friend said to his uh, workplace inclusivity and diversity team, he, he said, Sir, you know, the trouble is you people have a very narrow definition of what it means to be diverse and what it means to be inclusive. Well, apparently they didn't like hearing that either. 
So both of these friends uh, have come to the same conclusion quite independently of each other. They, they don't, they're not working in the same office. They're not even working in the same industry, but quite independently of each other, they've come to the very exact same conclusion that they diversity and inclusivity teams at work and nothing of the sort. They're actually quite exclusive groups. They're not after inclusivity really. And they're not really after uh, diversity. They're after a uniformity of thought on a thousand and one issues because for many people in our cultural context they actually believe that in order to be together a prerequisite for togetherness is agreement on a whole slew a uniformity of thinking on a whole slew of issues but jesus looks at that and he says you'll never get together like that there's no way you can't get there from here <laughs> You can't get there from here. You will never get together like that. We need to understand this. Jesus begins his kingdom, his kingdom announcement, his church begins precisely by undermining that whole way of thinking, precisely by undermining that approach to this whole issue. Jesus begins his kingdom by undermining that. On the night of his betrayal, Right, think about this. He's about to be led. He knows he's about to be betrayed. He's, he has already shared the bread with Judas in the same dish. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows he's going to be led, led off to be tried and then executed. And so he's going to say the most important things he can to his disciples and pray the most important things he can for his disciples. Right, so last words before I leave you. Here's what I want to tell you. And so he says this, a new command I give you. Can we have the, the verse up? A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, a new command I give you, Agree with one another, as I have agreed with you, so you must agree with one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you agree with one another. Jesus doesn't say that. And then just a few pages on, in, in John chapter 17, and, and this is again in the context of Jesus being about to be betrayed. And so he's, he said, these are the most important things, the most important command I can give you right now is to love one another the most. So here's the last thing I want to say to you is this, and then he's going to pray for them. And here's the last thing Jesus starts to pray for his disciples on the night he's betrayed. He prays that they may be brought to complete unity. That's what he says in this prayer, that they may be brought complete unity think about this jesus was not after agreement if jesus was after agreement do you know what he would have had to have done he would have had to spend three years arguing with his disciples Whew, that's tiring <laughs> he would have spent three years trying to argue with disciples and after three years trying to get argue them into agreeing agreement onto all of these different issues he would have failed he would not have succeeded i can guarantee you how would he have succeeded in that, right? He didn't spend three years arguing with his disciples. He spent three years loving his disciples, and he spent three years caring for his disciples. And his disciples weren't thinking, well, yeah, Jesus is putting up with me. You know, he tolerates me, but any minute now, he's going to cut me loose for saying the wrong thing or having the wrong idea. That's what's about to happen. 
No, Jesus never cut anyone loose for having the wrong idea or saying the wrong things. You, you know why? Because if Jesus had done that, how many disciples do you think he would have had? Zero disciples. He would have had zero disciples because his disciples were always getting the wrong end of the stick. They always had the wrong view of things, or a lot of the times they had the wrong view of things, opposing views. And Jesus never cut someone loose for having obnoxious and offensive ideas. In fact, these disciples felt so confident felt so confident in their relationship and just hanging around Jesus that they felt they could just spout forth and air all of their obnoxious. And they often did. You get to read some of it. And, and that's not the half of it, I can assure you. They get to spout forth all their obnoxious and offensive ideas in front of Jesus. And they know that Jesus actually enjoyed them and loved them as people. They knew that deep down. Jesus talks about love and he prays for unity. This, this is the exact opposite of the situation G.K. Chesterton was describing for us at the beginning, right? right this is, he, Jesus refused to isolate these virtues from each other. You can't pursue unity without pursuing love at the same time. Impossible. You pursue, you pursue these virtues together, not isolated from each other. Jesus was not after agreement and uniformity, he was after love and unity. And that may seem like a sort of subtle, minimal distinction, but it is a fundamental insight. And it's the one that our culture desperately, desperately needs. When Jesus says love one another, he's conscious of the other. He's saying love the other, the other. Those people over there who are different from us over here, those people who think differently, who see differently, who, who speak differently, those people over there, the other, as opposed to us over here who are similar, who are alike, who are the same, the other. Jesus says, love one another. He's conscious, deeply conscious of the other. And, and he knows that his disciples have, are very different from each other. And he is also very aware of the fact that his disciples' views and opinions often were at odds with his own deepest convictions. But somehow Jesus creates this environment where these people with these disagreements could come together and discover at the end of the day that Jesus was with them and Jesus was for them as human beings. Love one another as I have loved you. This was not a thought experiment, right? This is not a thought experiment. This was not uh, an academic exercise. Jesus fleshed this out. He lived this out with his disciples. And believe it or not, this is something that we can continue to do uh, with each other, even with our virtual interactions. I, I get to enjoy this in my community. I was just saying to my community group the other day, I know I get to voice things in that with that group of friends, which I may not be able to voice everywhere else, but I get to do that with them um, precisely because that's the kind of environment they make possible. And I'm so grateful for those friends in my Tuesday night community group. This is something we can continue to practice even in our virtual interactions. And something that we need to be practicing now, because one day, as I said, we're going to be back together, sitting in each other's homes, sitting across the table from each other over dinner, over coffee, in a coffee shop. We're going to be back meeting each other on a Sunday morning, spilling coffee over each other at the back. And when that happens, we want to know that we have been practicing this, because there's going to be more and more people who are going to come through our doors, <laughs> and they're going to be very different, and they're going to see the world very differently. And we want to know that we've been practicing this even in our virtual interactions now. 
So who are the people, just, just stop and think for a moment, who are the people who have very different views from you, who hold views that you might even find offensive and obnoxious? Look, in order to love those particular people well, you might need to let them be very, very different from you, to allow them to be different from you. Who, who are those people? If you're going to love those people well, you might, you might need to, uh, you might need to be willing to be offended by those people. Or better yet, you won't even be offended because Jesus says, no, Paul says, he says, love is not easily offended. And Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Love is not easily offended. And Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus was not an easily offended. I think it was very difficult to scandalize Jesus. Honestly, that's what I think. So think about those people now. One or two people, two or three people. Uh, who just see the world, see things differently, speak differently, think differently. Look, just think about them for a moment. Two or three people. Maybe you find that very easy. They immediately come to mind. You can picture that person right away, clearly in your mind's eye. Some of you, maybe it's harder to do. And maybe that's because you've learned to love those people so fantastically well, you don't even notice those differences very much because you enjoy them so much. You, you, you've learned to love them. Or maybe it's because you just don't hang around with people like that often enough, right? So you, I don't know. You decide why that is, why it's difficult. But, but think about two or three people, right, who just view the world in a very different way from you. Now, I want you to ask yourself this question, okay? Can you approach that person not as a project, the project being, can I get this person to agree with me on everything? Not as a project. And can you approach this person not as someone you just tolerate and put up with? Not as a project and not someone you tolerate. But as someone you genuinely enjoy. Someone you enjoy. And, and to the point where that person knows you enjoy them. It, isn't, it, isn't it a wonderful feeling when someone you know that someone is enjoying you as much as you enjoy them? Isn't that a great feeling? Isn't it a wonderful feeling where you, you, are in, where you know the person values your friendship as much as you value theirs, where you're just enjoying their, they, they're enjoying your company and you know they enjoy your company as much as you enjoy their company. Isn't that a great feeling when there's that kind of mutual enjoyment of each other and friendship and feeling? Can you approach that person, those two, three people in your mind and communicate and generate that kind of enjoyment of each other? Can, can you do that? I've been speaking with a couple of friends at Trinity Heights recently who've really been setting a, a wonderful example of this. And I, I wish I could talk about them by name and in detail, but I can't because if I do, I'll be giving them away. Um, but uh, you know who you are. <laughs> but when, 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 I, when I hear about how they have been going out of their way to really engage people in the friends and family members who see the world in utterly different ways from them. And these friends and family members are genuinely concerned that they're gonna get canceled, right? And that's not a ridiculous idea. We live in a cancel culture, right? We live in a cancel culture. So, so these friends have genuine concerns about being canceled because they hold such difficult views. And, and these other friends have gone out of their way to assure them, no, no, that's never, you're never getting canceled because we are with you and we are for you as human beings. But they've done more than that. I think one of the reasons why they've been able to assure them in this way is because they have entered, they've worked to enter into their world. 
they've attempted to see things from their point of view. They've tried to feel their pain and understand their concerns so that they're not just sympathetic from a distance, but they're empathetic up close. Sympathy and empathy, two different things, I think. They're not just sympathetic from a distance, but they're empathetic up close. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm so inspired by these friends and I'm so grateful for the example that they're setting me and the rest of our congregation. What practical steps can you take to enter into these, these friends of yours, into their world, so that you might feel some of their pain, share their concerns, and not just be sympathetic from a distance, but be empathetic up close? So that, because you know what they're worried about, you know what they're concerned about. And not only that, you know why they're concerned, you know why they're worried, you know why they feel the way they do, you know why they think the way they do. And no, it's not because they're evil and stupid. <laughs> that's, just, that's hardly ever the reason. <laughs> we, we cannot afford to be that lazy. Can you be empathetic with them up close so they can know that you are with them and you are for them? Because perhaps only then, only when we can allow the other to be the other in all their goodness and all their badness, in all their wholeness and all their brokenness, in all their rightness and all their wrongness. Perhaps only when we can allow the other to be the other, only then will we be able to accept Christ's invitation and join him on this journey of loving one another as he has loved us. Amen.